0: You are listening to Faithless Brewing, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the Spike Rogue. Each week we design new decks for tournament play. We put our creations to the test and share our findings on the air. Coming up on the roundup, Damon makes his triumphant return to Paper Magic with top 8 reports from Legacy and Modern. Then on the brew session, it's last call for Kamigawa Neon Dynasty. We take a look at five new decks with Tezzeret, Betrayer of Flesh, Kato Shizuki, and Invoke Despair. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show!
1: Welcome to the Faithless Brewing Podcast. I am David Robertson. I am coming to you live from the Twin Cities. And joining me for the first time in a long time is my guy on the left coast. He is back from many a sojourn into the wild. He is Damon Alexander. Damon, what's up, buddy?
2: Hey, yeah, that is right. Ski season is more or less over. And now it's a good time to play a lot of magic. Also been doing a lot of yoga just because we're in the the season in between where the mountains are not snowing enough for skiing. Too snowy for backpacking, but it's a great time to play some cards.
1: Absolutely. Great to uh, see you again. And we are joined by the original uh, Third Mouseketeer, the CEO of the Faithless Brewing Podcast. He is Dan Online, Daniel Schriever. Dan, what's going on?
0: Hey, I'm doing great, David. Boy, look at us. The gang's all back together again. Damon is here. He's back crushing the top eights.
1: Yeah, easy work. All right, we have a lot of stuff to touch on. Before we get to all that, we need to do a little housekeeping at the top. And the first thing, of course, is to welcome our newest patrons. So I would like to welcome Michael M. and Cameron S. Thank you very much for joining the Faithless Brewing Patreon. Just a reminder, the best way to support us if you enjoy the podcast is to go to patreon.com slash faithlessbrewing. And join at any level that you feel comfortable with. And uh, you get access to the Discord where people are firing up all kinds of crazy ideas. Um, you get access to swag. Now the paper tournaments are back. Maybe you're uh, ready to fire up some uh, Pioneer at uh, a regional tournament of some kind. So, uh, yeah, please join us.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Patreon.com slash is Brewing. That's the best way to support the show.
1: Yeah, so just a minor programming note, we are going to shift to a Friday-Monday release schedule. So typically it had been Friday-Sunday. Um, I think the Monday release just gives a little bit more time between the shows. It gives us a little more time during spoiler season to see more cards. Uh, so hopefully you're listening to this on your maybe your Friday commute to or from work. Uh, the next one will come out on Monday, so you can listen to that when you're super depressed heading back to work. Um, uh, this show, we're going to talk about a bunch of results. Damon played a bunch of tournaments this weekend. Um, Dan played a little bit. We've got a few brews and we've got some picks of the week. The, a lot of technology still, as people are filtering back into Pioneer and there's obviously still crazy stuff being tried out in modern. And then our show on Monday is going to be, um, a little reintroduction to Pioneer, uh, state of the format, Tier decks where everything sits as we kind of um are starting to see some of the dilettantes, some of the people who aren't big big fans of the format coming back, some people who were looking for excuse to start uh, exploring pioneer. So if you're wanting to uh get a little intro, uh, how do I get back into that format? Uh, Monday is when you want to tune it again.
0: Yeah, we did something similar for modern last week and we got a great response so far. People seem to really appreciate that resource. And that was a good reminder I guess for me, as someone who's you know talking about this stuff day in, week in, week out, that you know it's always good just to sort of take a step back and breathe and just remind ourselves, like, what are these decks that make up these formats? So if you're curious about Pioneer at all, getting psyched up about the pro tour and the regional championships, Mondays show is one you will not want to miss.
1: Okay, so now that that's out of the way, we're not going to talk about Pioneer. We're not going to talk about Modern. Damon, we're going to talk about Legacy. Our very own Damon Alexander played a Legacy 1K over the weekend and uh, had himself a little bit of success, I see.
2: Yeah, yeah. So this was a couple of weekends back uh, at Mox Boarding House in Bellevue, uh, hosted by Marchesa. Uh, so this was like a charity event. And they actually the, the headline event was actually a CEDH tournament. Uh, which is apparently like pretty popular now. Competitive EDH, where instead of it being like a nice, friendly format where people play Dirtly Battlecruiser stuff, and then one player's playing stacks, and that person get, gets the whole table mad at them. Everybody's playing stacks, and the whole is just upset the whole time. Uh, but they're all on equal footing. They're all prepared for each other. Um, but that seemed a little bit uh, not my style, so I prepared for the legacy part of the tournament and legacy is in a weird spot right now there is this blue red delver deck that is just kind of you've seen it in modern the deck is very similar to the modern blue red murktide deck uh but in legacy it gets wasteland and Days and force of will and that takes the deck to a whole different power level they actually lose ragavan in the process
1: do they actually play uh, delver daemon i know at various points the quote-unquote delver deck has not
2: yeah, the point where they didn't was when they were playing four Ragavan, and then Ragavan got banned, and they're back to four Delver. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not one for Delver decks, so I figured I'd just go back to my trusty Stone Blade. I played that in some uh, a league or two, and it felt extremely medium. Then I decided to take this uh, standstill list. I saw it from one of the Energy Five Ks that features uh shark typhoons and timeless dragon <laughs> timeless dragon is a quick refresher is three white white for a five five flying dragon with plane cycling two and eternalized two white white to come back as a four four black zombie that uh is uncounterable unblastable unboltable uh all nice qualities to have from mh2 yep yep uh kind of one of the sneaky sneaky power creep cards of the set um but otherwise, it's just for sort of this blue-white, splashing red control deck.
0: And you're playing three copies of Timeless Dragon. That's crazy to me.
2: Three copies. I know, and the card is so good. Uh, in part because this deck plays four standstill, and that card is extremely good for card advantage if you can win your die rolls and, you know, swords their first thing, force their second thing, resolve a standstill. Uh, if you do, then all of a sudden they have to break it. Otherwise, you start setting up your 4-4 four four dragons. Also, I've been playing these kind of blue-white decks in Legacy for a long time, and the mana bases are always pretty good, but sometimes you have like these Tundras and they get wastelanded, or you don't have the right colors, or whatever. Timeless drag and all of a sudden means you're just playing like extra fixing, and so your mana base is better than it's ever been, even though I'm splashing red.
0: So just to make sure I'm understanding the interaction here, you're trying to get standstill down, which discourages either player from casting any spells, but under a standstill, you are allowed to plain cycle your timeless dragon, and then eternalize the timeless dragon, all without breaking the standstill. Exactly. Yeah. So you have inevitability any time standstills in play, you're, you're fine with that.
1: Same with cycling Shark Typhoon, right? Those are your sort of six threats under your standstill.
2: Right, right. And these decks used to have to play cards like Mistress Factory to break standstill. And Ninja of the Deep Hours and Fairies? <laughs> I remember that. i played a few of those in the early days of Legacy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and the thing with like, Mishra's Factor is it makes your madness eventually worse. <laughs> and so to switch to a card that makes your madness especially better is just such a huge improvement. Uh, people played with Urza Saga at the beginning. Uh, I, I like this build a lot with, with no sagas. Just Just kind of mostly good, commonly played blue-white cards and then Timeless Dragons, Shark Typhoons and Standstills as the kind of Uh, more speculative cards but standstill feels really good against delver because they have to fight over it they can't do anything underneath the standstill they have to cast into it at some point and if you just cast this on turn three with one mana up they can't daze it so they have to force so you force back and then it resolves and then they lose (laughs) Um, and so just having this available against one of the the premier decks in the format uh, felt really good also in legacy, like there's because Delver is so good, powered by their best cards being Expressive Iteration and Murktide Regent by a, a absolute mile. Pyroblast is extremely played, and so playing blue threats is not really where you want to be right now. Uh, you know, Jay's post sideboard is going to get blasted. Shark Typhoon, you don't want to hardcast that thing, but Stan still sneaks in under Pyroblast and they can't Pyroblast it once it resolves very effectively. <laughs> So I took the deck to FNM, uh, had a 4-0 run. Uh, it was, I had a great time with the deck. Went through some soul-searching, decided Stoneblade was uh, not right. <laughs> and took it to uh, the 1K, where I went 3-1-1 and in the Swiss to make top 8. We did this price split thing, which is kind of weird, because it turns out that when you do the price split, people just want to go home. So you're trying to get number 1 in the, the record... <laughs> this is good for you because people go home. If you try and get number one from like the sense of glory of defeating motivated, skilled competitors. It is bad for you, um, but it's kind of weird because we actually voted anonymously. And what am I going to do? Like every other person wants to vote to split, and then I don't because I want them to have to sit down to fight me. Like I, I don't know. <laughs> um, but I won the first round, and then everyone else went home. So I technically won. Uh, so that's cool.
0: Well, wait, hang on a sec. So you guys took an anonymous vote, and I understand that the judge will typically say, okay, heads down, everyone. If anyone doesn't want to split, raise your hand. Is that how it works? Did you raise your hand?
2: Yeah, in this case, we did uh, We did pieces of paper, but same, same. I voted, I voted to price split. I don't want to be the one person. It, it seemed like most people wanted to split just from kind of like the...
0: So you betrayed your own principles in the name of getting along with your fellow top eight contestant. Okay.
2: I haven't really established my principles. <laughs> Do you have any principles here, Dan?
0: Well, I mean, if you want to play, if you want the glory, you've got to fight for it. You've got to chase it. You've just got to plant your flag and say, fight me. I'm here for that first place, whatever it is.
1: <laughs> That's always the guy I, who loses, by the way. Like, no, I don't want to draw. And yes. they're like, they're on the draw. <laughs> and they get managed And they're like, well... <laughs> Sweet, sweet justice.
0: Exactly. Put that <laughs> karma out into the universe and see what comes back. <laughs> I, I saw somebody on Twitter
2: recently who I'm not going to name, but they were like, I went undefeated at this one event. And then they posted a photo of their deck list. And she's like, oh, I guess they won. And then I saw, I was like looking at the comments and like 30 comments down. Somebody was like, oh yeah, we split the top eight. And this person wanted the internet points. So they negotiated for first place. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I at least won my quarterfinal match and I was honest about it. But I think these things happen more than you think.
1: <laughs> i consider you to be the victor and uh i think you played it perfectly uh not just yes. a very sweet deck but also uh <laughs> the results speak for themselves
2: yeah yeah it was weird because i played against elves a bunch and i'm playing two verdicts main deck and then i sideboard into three verdicts plus an end of the festivities plus four swords three prismatic ending
1: <laughs> you have to read what end of the festivities does by the way i had no clue what this card did <laughs>
2: Oh, yeah, there's been this like, very steady, very minor power creep of these cards that kind of deal one damage to each creature. <laughs> you know, it used to be Pyroclasm at one in a red to deal two to each creature. And then there was this card that had Overload that was red to deal one to one creature and one in a red to Overload to deal one to all creatures you don't control. Electricery. Yeah, Electricery. that's the one. Uh, and then End of the Festivities came out recently enough, um, and it's just one red mana sorcery, deal one damage to each creature your opponents control and each Planeswalker and somehow that just is slightly better than the other ones so you go against elves and you just scoop them up scoop up those elves (laughs) uh they're still a very scary deck game one you don't have that many sweepers and and, uh once actually i got lucky enough to have the second sweeper uh with a teferi uptick to sweep them mid crater hoof attack oh yeah yeah it felt really good but also (laughs) i really snuck that one by But then I watched uh, some some people streaming, like, the Legacy Challenge next weekend, and and I watched Reed Duca crushed by Elves, uh, along with, like, uh, Guillaume Wafotapo, who's gone on insane winning streaks recently, but not in Legacy against Elves. Uh,
0: Well, he didn't have the tech.
2: Didn't have
1: the tech. (laughs) And the festivities, the uh, common from the two sets ago. Come on, get with the
2: program. Yeah, yeah, from call time.
0: (laughs) It's a story spotlight card. It depicts... A bunch of werewolves busting in and breaking up the vampire wedding. They're so cute. Little direwolf puppies.
2: Oh, I didn't realize that it was connected to the wedding. Those were the festivities. Yeah. I just assumed it was a wirewood symbiote having fun with an elvish visionary. (laughs) All
1: right, so we we win the Legacy 1K.
2: Yeah, and then kind of scoured what was going on in the area, and there was a modern 1K the next weekend at a different store, the Laughing Dragon out in Issaquah. Uh, which sounds far away, but it's not far away. This time it was modern. And, you know, looking at the top deck lists, the last time I played in a modern and I played Kahira Control. And I was like, well, I guess I can just add these Abundant growths in the Urian." And I was like, well, whatever, everybody's doing that. You know, is Kahira Control like not good or is just does nobody do it? And I wasn't sure. So I decided to play a league and I had a great time. I went four and one. Went to the tournament and I went uh, four and four one and one. Uh, one of the, the draw was actually not intentional, but I was extremely ahead, so I'm going to give myself the honorary win there. Uh, so I made top eight in eighth place. I got crushed by Burn. Uh, I beat Green Red Midrange. Uh, drew with eight cast. Beat Scales rug murk, Tide uh, Blue Red Breacha Van or whatever it's called. Uh, then I got. Uh, Smoked by Burn. And then I just got crushed in the quarterfinals by uh, Four-Color Urion. But I, I don't think that's a sign that the Urian build is definitively better. I think it's better, but...
0: Just a point of order. When Damon says he was playing Kahira Control, that's not what he means. He means he was playing Four-Color Omneth with 60 cards instead of 80 cards. Kahira Control typically would be like a straight blue-white control deck with maybe like a minor splash into red or green, uh, as we talked about last week. But Damon is playing, I don't know, this was in fashion like last season, two seasons ago. Yeah, yeah. You have four copies of Omnath, Locus of Creation, three expressive iterations, and then a uh, primarily blue-white control package. But you're also playing three copies of Renaissance. Six.
2: Exactly. That's a great description, Dan. Yeah, I, I think right around the, f- the late fall this deck was maybe 50 50 in popularity with the uh, Urion builds uh, built around Omnath and kind of just similar spells but with more abundant growths. Uh, yeah, so I would call this deck four color Kahira control uh, to be precise.
0: Four color Omnath control. I mean, Kahira has nothing to do with it, I assume, right?
2: <laughs> sure, sure. Omnath is certainly the more powerful card of the two. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But Kahira's there every game cheering you on from the sidelines. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think the deck is actually pretty good. It's extremely it's extremely powerful and it's more consistent than the Orion deck. You know, we like to gripe when the the Orion players always have their mystical disputes or whatever. Uh and they, they somehow do, but they shouldn't uh even playing this deck i would go through games at a time like a whole match where i just don't draw a single omnath over you know 20 plus turns of magic and i'm like man where where's my omnath like this deck is like kind of media like medium <laughs> um <laughs> these cards just like are so so and you can still win but it's hard um 80 card decks you're just going to have this problem but even compounded this deck is also easier to shuffle you know i can search through the deck one-handed i can shuffle it you know as fast as any other magic deck And if you need counterspells, you know, you have four of them. You're playing 60 cards. Those are decent enough odds. If you're looking for Teferi's, you have four of them, 60 cards. Uh, Some of the other ratios are kind of similar to the Orion, you know, version. Like I have three Ren and six. They have four Ren and six. Three Expressive Iteration, four Expressive Iteration, three Solitude, four Solitude. The math works out similarly. But yeah, I I consider this build to actually be the true kind of successor of five-color Niv-Mizzet that we used to play a lot of. You know, maybe there's like a competitive build of that deck out there, but I don't think so. Probably like tier two. Uh, But this deck is is quite strong. Um, I really like Supreme Verdict in the meta right now. There's a lot of Murktide. There's a lot of decks that just vomit out board. You can slow them down with the Prismatic Endings and such. uh, And then you, you know, scoop them all up. Um, There's not as much combo. There's some Tron. There's some Burn. You have to be prepared for these matchups, especially in paper. But especially at the LGS, like 1K, like I really like playing Supreme Verdicts. There's just so many people playing these like mid-range decks that vomit out creatures. Uh, you play a few counterspells when they try to resolve their planeswalkers or whatever, and then they play creatures, you cast verdict. They they, they just kind of scoop up their cards and then you go to the next game.
0: Yeah, you're only playing the four copies of counterspell and one force of negation in your main deck, but you know, you still have a ton of interaction. It's just skewed more towards one-for-one one removal and then the two supreme verdicts
2: right right the counter spells just kind of you know sometimes you have nothing better to do on two mana so you counter their thing as you prepare to kind of curve out to ferry into omnath or whatever sometimes you just kind of go nuts and you go turn four omnath or turn five omnath into fetch land into to ferry five into Untap two lands into holding up counter spell uh I think that playing for Counter Spell is just, you know, this got card got printed to MH two. Ari Lax had a weird tweet that compared it to Splinter Twin, and I really don't understand what he meant. But... Yeah, I saw that tweet too. I'm, I'm a big <laughs> Ari Lax
1: fan. I, I really enjoy his uh, critiques of design, etc. But I, did, I didn't even understand what he was saying, so I I can't tell if I agree or disagree <laughs> yeah. with him. I'm not I'm not sure what's happening. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Felt like I was having a small stroke. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
2: The card is really just best in class, and so playing for them just gives you nice outs. You know, there's cards like Thought Monitor. You really do want to counter on the way down. Uh, Urza, you can untap in Verdict.
1: How did you find the format in general, Damon? You played a pretty wide uh, range of decks against a wide range of decks.
2: Yeah, I really like the LGS modern format right now. I'm less convinced that the, you know, if you look at like the Energy 20k they had over the weekend... you look at the challenges there's a lot of just like it's a pretty condensed meta you have these Urien decks you have the cascade decks either rhinos or living end you have blue red murktide some amulet titan and that's kind of about it uh you sometimes will see like yawgmoth there's there's a few other decks that show up but it's like it's just a much narrower meta um and and these decks the reason why they're doing so well is because they're extremely good extremely consistent decks all powered by a lot of new cards. Whereas the LGS, you just you just see a bigger range of cards. You know, People have their pet decks, they have the cards that they own, the decks they've been playing for years. Uh, it's a nicer vibe.
0: Well, speaking of having decks in paper, I finally got a, a modern paper deck up to date. I've been playing a lot of Sultai Crabvine. Uh, a couple of months back, I learned the deck to play in a modern super qualifier, and we had Anthony Menino, also known as I Play Bad Decks, for a bonus episode where we talked all about the strategy. One of the things I liked about the deck was that it used a lot of cards that I already owned, like very, very few MH2 cards. So I decided to finally you know, get the last few subtleties and force negations for the sideboard so that I could actually play this deck and you know start getting back in action at, at uh, the LGS. So I took Crabvine to FNM, Got a quick 3-0. It was very nice. I got a Ragavan for first place. I was feeling good about that. And yeah, I decided to like try it in some of last week's online tournaments, too. Um, there were actually a, a bunch of super qualifiers last week on Magic Online, so I played modern super qualifiers on Monday and Friday. There was also the Mana Traders series for the month. Um, they do a monthly 15k tournament where you have to qualify by going 7-3 and three or better in the qualifier league, so I played Crab Vine for that. I played a bunch of Crab Vine the last uh, couple weeks. And yeah, I mean, there's no new tech to describe, but I mean, the deck is oddly satisfying. It's got Hedron Crabs and Otherworldly Gazes, two of my absolute favorite cards, just pointing those crab triggers at yourself, getting Venge Vines back, resolving Creeping Chills. And I'm winning at about 67% right now. Uh, when I added it all up, I went seven and three in the Monday Super Qualifier. I had just missed um, making top thirty-two on on Breakers, got thirty-third place. Eight and two in the Mana Traders Qualifier League, um, and then some middling results: four and three in the Mana Traders Swiss, and then one three drop in the second Super Qualifier. But I mean, I really like the way the deck plays in general. The format is shifting against it. Like, unfortunately, Living End has become very popular right now. And that's a good thing Love, in the sense that this that. deck is <laughs> extremely good against Living End. Like I, I never lose that matchup. But it's very bad in that people are actually like paying attention to graveyards now. And I keep running into Rest in Peace, Game One, Dothy Void Walkers. Uh, unfortunately this deck is very, very weak to Shadow Spear. So you just like have a a ticking clock against an Urza Saga. You have to kill them very fast before they get Shadow Spear equipped. Uh, and some people are even playing Chalice of the Void again, which this deck also struggles against.
2: Yeah, it's true. Chalice of the Void, rest in peace. Void <laughs> Voidwalker. These are good cards to be playing in your modern deck right now. Uh, would not recommend going with the Rug Tide build one of my opponents had. Uh, that's just a lot of cards in that deck that get <laughs> absolutely hosed by rest in peace. Uh <laughs> But hey, Dan, you got a regga You're 20% of the way to building a better modern deck.
0: <laughs> I was like, this is the most expensive first place prize because now I have to like buy three more regga <laughs> <So laughs> I'm out like 250 bucks.
1: Then you can build a uh, blue-red merc die list that also loses trust in peace, but in a totally different way.
0: <laughs> exactly, exactly. So we were having a little question about this before the show is the win rate for Salti Crabvine like acceptable? Would you consider this like a plausible contender based on my results so far?
2: Absolutely, sixty-six percent is is quite strong. I mean, it's still a small sample size. If you compute the error bars, I'm sure it's like you know fifty-two to eighty percent or whatever. Um, and even that you have to take with a grain of salt. The threshold that Watsi sets for banning a deck hovers at like fifty-five percent. And so you're well above that and the thing is that um obviously you know if a bunch of people start playing this deck, there'd be a normalization effect that occurs, a regression to the mean. But the thing is that to win a super qualifier to make top eight of a big tournament, you have to run hot, and my guess is that in your seven three run, it's not like you were drawing insanely well but just couldn't win even with those draws. My guess is that you you probably stumbled a few times, which it means that like. You know, a couple of things go your way and all of a sudden you're in the top eight or you win.
0: I stumbled three times to be specific <laughs> for that seven and three result. Yeah. But yeah, I mean that's basically how it went. And this is that's how I took the exact same deck and went uh nine and one in the qualifier in January.
2: Yeah. That's where I struggle with the the Orion build versus Kahira. It's like the Urion build. You know, to win a, a big tournament, you, you have to run hot. You're not going to win a big tournament and come out of it being like, oh man, I got so unlucky, I can't believe I won. You know, you're going to have to have things go your way. You're going to have to win some die rolls, open good sevens, not mulligan to oblivion, uh, you know, twice in a match.
1: Dodge some bad matchups.
2: Right, right. A lot of things have to just fundamentally fall in your favor to beat the other, you know, 50, 100, whatever number of people are in the room, you know, vying for that trophy. Um, and like with the Orion build, for example... You can see the highlights, right? Where they, at some point, have Omnath into Urien and they draw four cards and it pulls them massively ahead. And Kahira doesn't do that for you. But Kahira makes you steadily just draw your counterspells on turn two or Teferi on turn three just more reliably. Now, it's hard to understand how to balance those two. You know, is it better to play a deck that has more variance because it gives you a higher chance of doing really well even though your chance of doing pretty well is maybe a little bit lower?
0: Hmm. So, David, I'm curious what you think, because I had you play a couple rounds with this deck over the weekend, and you said you you spent a lot of those matches feeling totally helpless, like your opponents had the appropriate hate and there was literally nothing you could do to impact the result of the game.
1: Yeah, I find these kind of decks stressful. So, to Damon's point, if you win 66% of the the games, then, yeah, this is definitely, uh, that's an acceptable win rate, but I I think I went 1 and 2. And even the two matches I lost, I went uh, 1-2. But it just felt like I was very much uh, a prisoner of my top, like, 10 cards. And, Mm. you know, I had to mull to... You you gave me sort of some um, iterative mulling uh, strategies, which were very useful. Um, And then, yeah, it was just like, oh, they're... Like, Tron has a a graveyard hate piece on turn one. They're not... They just have it. So, like, okay, well, I'm probably not going to win this game. It just... That just sucks so bad. Now I have to, like, play around it the whole game. And it's like, you ha- you're you trying to do your thing. Like you say, when you do your thing, most of the time it's good enough. But then if your opponent disrupts it, it's like, oh, God. Now there's just, like, it's, like, so stressful. It's like if you have a combo and these two cards have to align. But if it gets disrupted at all, you can't win. I'm just, like, the whole game, I'm just, like, you know, I have all this nervous energy. Like, fuck, man. <laughs> if anything goes wrong, <laughs> it's going to go really wrong. And I just have to sit there, like, all right, I don't want to, like, throw like give up i'll like play vendrine for four and attack and kill our Karn. like you know tron just in there like four cards in their hand like i'm going to lose this game but i have to you know
2: that's because you and i are both is it mages dave yeah um and so we like this illusion of control where you know <laughs> exactly. I, you lose to some crazy scales build as your thing in the ice barely doesn't flip or whatever and you're like well i could easily visualize how i could have won that game um, maybe I made a slight mistake on my fetching on turn two or whatever. And then you play these decks and you're like they like land their rest in peace, and you're like, this deck is never gonna win this match. How could I possibly win through that card? Um, but you could visualize it, and the answer is well, they don't always draw rest in peace on curve, or they draw it like a little bit too slow, or you have your Assassin's Trophy, or any number of things could go could go your way. But yeah, I don't feel very comfortable piloting these decks to tournaments. I almost never bring it would ever bring a deck like this to a tournament. Um it's not that it's bad. It's just not my style.
1: Yeah, exactly. The, the deck is good. You've had good results with it, but like I know I would never get good results with it, and the style of magic it plays does not actually involve a lot of magic, per se. There's like a ton of decisions like what to put on top of my otherworldly gaze, and then it just kind of does its
2: thing. <laughs> is, that, is that true, Dan? Does this deck have minimal skill, or do you find it to be pretty complex in terms of... Okay, looking at it, yeah. What sequencing could there possibly be?
0: I think you could... like teach a robot to do it and the the robot could execute the lines it does take you know five or ten matches to get the hang of exactly what is the right sequence but once you're doing that you know it's it's just like probability
1: and like making the mulligan decisions were difficult but dan gave me just some like you know hierarchical decision trees and like i follow those exactly now dan as an experienced pilot would maybe have made me slightly more subtle decisions but he may have Ended up making the exact same Mulligan decisions that I did. Uh,
0: yeah, I, I imagine so. But yeah,
1: he had to put in all the hard work to like come up with that.
2: <laughs> yeah. I would also guess that sideboarding is a place where somebody like Dan with experience with this deck could pick up easily 10% match win rate percentage over somebody who doesn't know how to sideboard correctly.
0: Yeah, I always say, when in doubt, just don't sideboard with this deck. <laughs> just don't even bother. Like, you're never going to draw the sideboard cards, but yeah i think of it as a simple deck but then you know like i watch like a, a streamer play it and i'm like no what are you doing don't do that it's Like, don't play the crab on turn one that's a, the worst play you could possibly make but i don't know it takes like five or ten matches to get the hang of it
2: oh and then it gets ending or whatever yeah i never yeah. played a crab on turn one
1: <laughs> i figured that part out at least <laughs> I mean, I played a list that literally played like seven pieces of hate. I was just like, well, that's pretty good. <laughs> that frickin' uh, uh, black-red enchantment saga that blows up all one-mana permanence on its first thing.
2: Heated Sugu consumes all.
1: Yeah, somehow the second freaking lore counter exiles the graveyard after it kills my crab and my citrus <laughs> supplier. <laughs> and they had endurance, and they had... Oh, I was just... So terrible. <laughs> it's like, like the, f- the fifth graveyard hate piece they played in the first game. I was like, well, that's pretty bad.
2: <laughs> that card is surprisingly good. It hasn't quite landed on a tier one deck, but when testing for Legacy, we had these all access tokens. And so I, I tried out this Crixis control list that played three of that card. who consumes all. Uh, it's, it's crazy what that card can do.
1: Before Luris got banned, I think it was ascending in uh, in modern playability as well. you're starting to see people 5 0 with it. Like in every deck dump, there'd be one or two decks playing, you know, two or three of them main.
2: Right, right. When you play a main deck, you first off gain a ton of equity against Urza Saga matchups. And then you also gain some equity against graveyard decks. It's a little bit slow for exiling the graveyard, but it gets there eventually. And so like there's games where you can slow down dredge with like a counter spell or a removal spell or whatever. You know, you can you have enough removal to like kill a couple of amalgams, but then of course they come back and they overwhelm you. And Hidesuku Kunzum's will give you a lot of equity in your game ones, which then going into game two or game three in those matchups, if you can ever win game one against Dredge, it is the best feeling in the world. And so the <laughs> card just like kind of covers enough bases. You know, you look at the opponent with like a two DRCs and a ragavan, <laughs> you know, like this card is going to make you smile.
0: All right, so let's shift gears a little bit. I guess this episode will come out on Friday which is actually the beginning of the official preview week of Streets of Capena. But we are recording this in the distant past, or the not-too-distant past, where we don't have the set. We just have a couple more of these charm cycles that they've been trickling out to help us get to know the guilds. So let's talk real quick about the Bant and Jund members of the charm cycle, or rather the Brokers and Riveteers charms.
1: Yeah, so Brokers Charm, the Bant Charm, um, is... Bant colors, instant. And choose one. Target creature you control gets plus one, plus O until end of turn. It deals damage equal to its power to target creature or planeswalker an opponent controls. So we sometimes call it when a creature fights another creature, they both deal their power to each other. This effect is often called a bite. So just your creature doing its power to the planeswalker or creature. The other mode is destroy target enchantment. And the third mode is draw two cards. Um, worth noting, three mana instant draw two cards does not exist in Pioneer right now.
0: Hmm. So my first thought was that this is like a decent card in in modern. It's kind of like an Archmage's Charm that you can pitch to Solitude, which wouldn't seem like that big a deal. But just last week when we were going through the modern archetypes, we were looking at this four-color Yorian Omnath deck that was playing four counterspells and four Archmage's Charm, which seemed like an insanely greedy, greedy card to put into your four-color mana base. And I wonder, like, if you just had access to Broker's Charm, would you want a mix of Archmage's Charm and Broker's Charm? Like, it's much easier to get green, blue, white than it is to get blue, blue, blue.
2: The the thing with... Archmage's Charm is basically self synergistic, where you want to play decks, you know, flash draw twos are much better when you're also playing counter spells. And so to get this, like, kind of synergy built into a charm is, is cool. And that's why that card is seeing so much play, I claim. Broker's Charm doesn't work that way. If, if you're trying to punk their Urza Saga, I mean, sometimes you do it end of turn, but usually the Urza Saga is going to come down before this. And then you want to cast it before they untap and level it up. Uh, and so it's less obvious how this card is going to support like a flash strategy where if they if they pass without doing anything you draw two
1: yeah also the steel is actually quite good on archmage's charm um there's lots of one mana threats uh, damon was just detailing many of them you know drc um a actual token from urza saga um ragavan death
2: shadow death yeah death the list goes on etc
1: cetera, etc cetera. So, it has two functions that are two-for-ones, and then one that's a straight-up counterspell, which basically you're often trading three mana for four mana, or whatever, if you want to think of it that way. This basically never does that. Destroying an enchantment is the best mode in modern, probably, just because it can destroy the best land in modern. If we're not counting Balakut, I guess, maybe we're, maybe it's better than Balakut, I don't want to get into that. The, the fight mode is really bad, um, or the bite mode is just not even close to an acceptable removal spell at, at the modern power level.
2: Yeah, if it had something that, like, was good against some chunk of the meta, you know, like the, was it the Grixis one that gets, um, no, sorry, it's the gentleman we'll get to in a second that has exile target player's graveyard. If Broker's Charm, you know, drew from the white roots to be able to exile graveyards or whatever, so you could flash destroy Urza Saga, flash exile a graveyard, uh, or draw two cards, like, that might be flexible enough, but yeah, I, I agree, the bite mode here is pretty bad.
0: What about playing here, David?
1: Oh, so I kept saying as soon as they print a the Bant Triome, I will be building a Bant Flash deck with four Pack Ambusher for Wandering Emperor. Wandering Emperor has been much better than even I thought it was. Uh, this card is going to be in that list in some number, you know, probably like two. Maybe like two Brazen Borrower, two this. Those are your three drops. Maybe. Yeah, that's probably all I'd play it. So you have like four Growth Spirals. Some shark typhoons, exactly. A couple sylvan carry added. Maybe if you're playing a couple of these, you can play like one torrential gear hulk on top. If that's maybe better than the second shark typhoon, etc., you can you can figure you can imagine march of otherworldly light, obviously very powerful. So, yeah, this is awesome in that kind of thing. Um, again, it's very interesting with torrential gear hulk. It basically turns into a straight up removal spell for a planeswalker, even. Uh, it's doing it's going to do six damage. Uh, that's that's really good. Like I said, the three mana draw two does not exist in the format um destroy target enchantment is not very good uh but you know every once in a while it might matter it does it does kill uh ascendancy which is one of the you know tier one or tier two decks depending on how you want to rank it so i think this card is very interesting the three mana on three is a little complicated um but yeah in the bant flash deck i'm envisioning uh which you know damon and i just spelled out most of the deck um yeah th- this will be some number for sure
2: Yeah, you know, I have the new Triumph. Yeah.
0: Okay, how about Riveteer's Charm? Black, red, green, instant. Choose one. Target opponent sacrifices a creature or planeswalker they control with the highest mana value among creatures and planeswalkers they control. Or exile the top three cards of your library. Until your next end step, you may play those cards. Or exile target player's graveyard.
1: So to me, this card is the one that's penalizing you the least for its flexibility. Uh, the first mode is basically Soul Shatter, although it does target an opponent. It's a minor difference, but Soul Shatter is a three-mana effect that has seen a lot of play in blue-black decks already in Pioneer. The second mode is a better Act on Impulse. Act on Impulse never really made it in Modern. I don't know if it's legal in Pioneer, but it's seen no play in Pioneer. But it saw some play in like Legacy and Vintage, I've seen. A few like weird mono red decks. This is better than that. It's an instant speed card you can play at the end of their turn. Um, and then next selling pe- uh, player's graveyard normally isn't worth a full card in your main deck, except this lets you basically like play graveyard hate on a card that can do stuff against every other deck, right? Uh, against Winota, right? You just kill Winota when they play it, and against a uh, control deck or whatever, I EOT this, and you know if they want to counter it, then I get to resolve my four mana spell. So. This card is super powerful to me. The only question in Pioneer is, is there a home? There is no Jund mid-range deck. Uh, the Jund mana is not great. Um, but yeah, this this card asks the least of you for giving you a lot of uh, powerful effects. To the point that this is probably the one that I could see seeing play just on raw power level in Modern.
2: Yeah. I agree. The The Exiling target player's graveyard is not worth a full card, except for when it is, and when it is, it's usually worth 10 cards.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's worth everything. It's like, man, I would spend a lot of mana to just have this effect main deck. It's like, oh, we're just strapping this to your to a great removal, or a reasonable removal spell, and a reasonable card advantage spell.
2: Right, right. Now, of course, we've had this ability on Kaya's Guile, which Dan and I have certainly cast a lot of in Modern's history. Uh, and that card lets you choose two, which is a little bit more generous. But uh, this one is still, like, it has a lot of interesting modes. Uh, First off, I think it's very important that it has this kind of get-off-my-back ability as a first one. You know, they have some big Mm. creature. It needs to go. Your charm can't be too dirty. You know, like the the Bant one, like, it doesn't have a good defensive ability unless you're specifically worried about an enchantment or you already have a creature, in which case it's less important. This one just says you have a reality smasher, you have a whatever creature, Tarmogoyf, Murktide, whatever. uh, Get get off of me. Um, And then, yeah, like, it, it can straight up really make your next turn gas with its Exile Top 3 in the kind of red impulsive style. Uh, That is some serious grinding ability.
0: All right, well said. So I think that does it for the charm cycle. We will be back, of course, in a week when the spoilers are done. We will have our comprehensive set review. But for now, I think we're going to shift gears and talk about a last set of brews, talk about some decks to close out Kamigawa and Neon Dynasty season. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we will tell you all about them.
2: Welcome back. So we opened the Kamigawa season... Covering Tezret Betrayer of Flesh, which is a quick reminder, is two blue blue for a four mana Planeswalker Tezret. With a static, the first activated ability of an artifact you activate each turn costs two less to activate. Plus one, draw two cards, then discard two cards unless you discard an artifact card. Minus two, target artifact becomes an artifact creature. If it isn't a vehicle, it has base power and toughness 4 4. And then minus six, you get an emblem with whenever an artifact you control becomes tapped, draw a card. So it has synergies with vehicles or just artifacts, artifacts with abilities, uh, kind of a whole spectrum of of stuff. We played it some there. We had some lists, but David had a few more lists to try out. So walk us through your first one.
1: Yeah, so I felt like Tez did not get its fair shake. Um, In modern, there's obviously a lot more interactions. But the problem is that Urza is a similar sort of synergistic piece with artifacts at four mana that's just better than Tezzeret. Um so every list that Tezzeret would look good in, right, Urza would look a little better in. Um and in Pioneer, I think it's just the best four mana planeswalker, except for maybe Wandering Emperor. Um I guess you could make a case for Karn depending on the on the metagame.
2: To fairy master of time? No.
1: No, sadly. <laughs> <laughs> I still like find myself putting it in my like original 75s, and then I like just find a better card, unfortunately, but I think about it a lot. Uh weirdly. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so I just feel like people actually don't really brew at all. Even this like return to pioneers is people just playing five lists. It's just like nobody <laughs> wants to try anything new.
2: It is pretty sad to see.
1: Yeah. So I, I've just been like tooling around with ideas. And so the first one I had is like the Moonsnare prototype spring drum package. It's just like a bunch of artifacts that allow you to turn three at a huge amount of the time. And then it makes your artifact density such that Tezzeret can turn those artifacts in the late game into other stuff. Or, of course, we know Moonsnare Prototype is uh, just, you know, a mediocre removal spell. But still, sometimes 5 mana to not lose is is worth it. I also have been really impressed by Wandering Emperor. It's a card, you know, I thought would be good. I actually think it's great. I I think I really underrated it. And I really like the idea of, like, Wandering Emperor and Settle the Wreckage in the same deck. Again, like... Blue-white lists have all these flash stuff, but then they just never play Settle the Wreckage. And Settle the Wreckage is actually just an insane card with Wandering Emperor. It puts your opponent in a crazy bind. Um, you know, Or if they just attack with one creature and I have settle, uh, if I have Wandering Emperor, then they let me off the hook. And I get to play my Wandering Emperor uh, in a temple positive way. If they attack with all their creatures, then I get to settle them. Um, something I really enjoyed in the Hanada uh, world, where I was playing Hanada with March and Settle. Same kind of question. So I built a blue-white list... Um, which had the full four Moonstare Prototype, four Leap Drum, and took it through a league and uh, went 3-2. Uh, there were some things I liked, some things I didn't like. The main problem was I was playing Reality Chip. Uh, the theory was if you're going to play a bunch of Tesserets, you just strap your Reality Chip to uh, Patchwork Automaton, which has a little bit of protection with its ward, uh, and then you start tearing through your deck. The problem is the entire deck was made to be good against Push, and Chip is the one card that does not trade favorably with Push, and so... It got pushed a lot. I was boarding it out all the time. Um, And then I didn't have enough bodies for my Springleaf Drum, so my mana wasn't as stable as I wanted it to be. So I'm proposing a rebuild of it, uh, which is sort of a mid-range Wandering Emperor list, if you will. Um, But it does take advantage of Tezzeret because it has Maze Mine Tome. Um, In the late game, you know, your patchwork automatons aren't needed anymore. You chuck those away and, uh, you know, just you turn three, one of your four mana planeswalkers and you, you just start going to town. And it's actually really hard for um, a lot of decks to kill four mana planeswalkers.
2: Is there any room to play the card farewell here? I feel like that card is just like seeing a lot of play now in these blue white lists because it just cleans up all sorts of previously unsolvable game states. And I can see this deck, you're kind of dirtling with your artifacts and your Maze mine tomes and your moonsnare prototypes and you may have a lot of mana, and you may have some Planeswalkers.
0: I feel like Farewell would clean up your own board a little bit too well.
2: Possibly, yeah.
0: You have a bunch of cheap artifacts and occasionally Thraben Inspectors and Patchwork Automatons too.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with you though, Damon, that Fare, Farewell's been an impressive card, for sure. But yeah, this, this deck is a little more like tempo-oriented. I mean, I'm trying to play my format of Planeswalker on three... Uh, you don't actually get that far behind, and Settle the Wreckage, if it ever resolves, and you just have an active 4-mana Planeswalker, the game's basically over, like, you're now the aggro deck.
2: That's fair. Hmm.
0: So if I'm understanding this right, you have, like, an artifact package that maximizes Tezzeret Betrayer of Flesh. That includes, like, a minimum artifact density, so that Tezzeret's draw 2, discard 2 actually becomes a draw 2, discard 1 a decent chunk of the time. But then for power, you're playing Wandering Emperor, four of that, which doesn't really synergize per se with anything in the deck. It's just like a powerful card that you're ramping into with your artifact package.
1: Yeah, like the the, the thing that I've realized is Wandering Emperor just wins the game by itself. So you have like a card that both keeps you alive. And then, but unlike other Planeswalkers, or if you, if you think of Wandering Emperor, it's like a four mana removal spell that's kind of like a two for one because you almost always get to activate it twice. But it's also a removal spell that if they don't do anything, or if you're way ahead, it actually also just wins the game. Like it just spits out a bunch of two twos, and putting plus one plus one counters on Patrick Automaton, which has uh, like a pseudo protection, is actually like quite reasonable. So normally, like blue white decks, just they they lose that activation. They just plus one. They don't add it to anything on the board. This like buffs you know your whatever garbage card they don't want to kill, Thraven Inspector or Patrick Automaton, and then it goes back to like making a token every other turn.
2: The card is pretty good. It's true.
0: Seventy tickets right now. (laughs)
2: Yeah. I'm still trying to learn how to play the card, to be honest. Sometimes I like play it as like end of turn as a flash threat and realize it's actually kinda not that useful because now I lost access to the minus two working effectively. It's like somehow like the first activation is like the best.
1: Yeah, totally agree. And people in Pioneer are like the players in the leagues are so bad. They're finally starting to learn to like play around it. Like they'll see that I have it. And then just like attack in such a way that like wandering emperor is good. It's like, you can just make me eat four mana. Like I can't not play nothing that turn. <laughs> like you don't have to just attack into it. Like, Oh, okay. I guess this guy just gets to exile my best creature. Like you don't have to do that. <laughs>
0: hmm. So I have some thoughts about the artifact package, but you have a similar deck adds green to it, which I actually got to try in a league today, so maybe let's talk about that and then I want to ask you some questions about some of these cards. Sure. So this is, again, a Tezzeret Betrayer of Flesh deck. Four copies of Tezzeret. You're using Portable Hole, Moonstar Prototype, Patchwork Automaton, and a couple Springleaf Drums. Green gives Gilded Goose, which is actually extremely cute with Moonstar Prototype. Moonstar Prototype allows you to tap either a creature or an artifact to add a colorless mana, and Goose provides one of each. Suddenly, this extra game piece, this food token that Gilded Goose provides, just has a lot of intrinsic value, and you can even like tap the food with the Moonstar Prototype and then eat the food with the Goose for two mana in one shot. It's very cute. You're also playing four copies of Tireless Tracker. This is the best way to just go off with Tezzeret's static ability. Tezzeret allows you to Crack one clue for free on your turn and on your opponent's turn, and rounded the deck out with three copies of Reality Chip, three Metallic Rebukes, four Sylvan Curiatids, a Maze Mind Tome, and a Karn Scion of Urza. So it's basically like Tireless Tracker versus Wandering Emperor, which is interesting contest. now that we've been <laughs> singing the praises of Wandering Emperor. <laughs> Can Tireless Tracker measure up in the ring? And when I took this through a league, it was a really interesting deck. I went three and two. Really liked the Guild's Goose interaction, really did not like the Patchwork Automaton and the Springleaf Drum. I felt like these cards were here solely because of Tezzeret, and Tezzeret himself like didn't seem to require them on the one hand, and also didn't seem to pay me off enough for putting them into my deck.
1: Yeah, the other thought there with Patchwork Automaton is that I wanted more bodies that were stable to put Reality Chip on. Um, I think people play chip in decks where the creatures they put it on are going to die or too often, and that is just a game-losing play. You cannot spend five mana and um, have that that creature die right away. Uh, we don't have any way to cheat it uh, onto a creature other than Tezzeret itself. Um, I've actually been really impressed with Patchwork Automaton, uh, the times I played against it before they uh, banned all aggro decks, and then um, I've I've really enjoyed it when I've been playing with it. This deck does not have a lot of artifacts, though, to your point. Um, So you thought it it was just often just like a 1-1 or a 2-2?
0: Yeah, I think the biggest I ever got it was 5-5, but usually it was a 2-2, occasionally a 3-3, and there were several games where I played it on turn two and then didn't grow it for like several turns after that. Because the artifact density here is not that high. Um, You know, you're playing 12 green cards that are all... Creatures that are not artifacts. You're playing Karyotid, Tracker, and Goose.
2: Yeah, you, you cheated to basically have these these green cards that give you artifacts uh, <laughs> with the Tracker <laughs> and the Goose, but of course, Patrick Otomiton requires you to cast. So I, I see how there's a bit of a mismatch here.
0: I also was surprised at how many creature decks I got paired against. I felt like every round was against a creature deck. Four Portable Holes helps, but in the main deck, like, I actually find it a little bit hard to clean up the battlefield and specifically in pioneer there's there's two creatures winota joiner of forces and grease Fang will keep a boss that if you can't kill them at instant speed they're going to create a battlefield that this particular config- configuration just couldn't solve like once they get one trigger off with either of those creatures there just isn't enough in this deck to actually remove them at least not in the first game i, I was able to get some people with settled wreckage in games two and three but you know, If they played around it, I don't know what, have, what would have happened.
1: How was the, how's the mana, Dan? I mean, we could also play Wandering Emperor in this list.
0: Yeah, the mana was really good. Um, yeah, colors were not a problem. I actually was usually siding out the Springleaf Drums and the Patchwork. You are playing the Sylvan Carriatives, which the blue white version was not. So there's like a ton of mana sources in this deck. Almost too many mana sources. Like, you have 11 big engine cards in Tesseret looting every turn, Tireless Tracker drawing every turn, and sometimes reality chip. But then apart from those action cards, there's a ton of error. Like there's just so many mana sources in the deck. So I wonder if you could just try to find like a little bit more of a happy medium. You know, maybe don't play quite so many mana sources and just get a little more just solid cards. Like I, I really like the Elder Gargaroth on the sideboard. I, I would have liked that main deck even.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, this this was a pretty speculative build, and I tooled around with the numbers a lot without ever actually playing games. But yeah, I, I do agree with you. There's, there are a lot of mana sources in the deck. Um, you do have screenshots here where you could just be ultimating Tezzeret, and you're complaining about uh, <laughs> how you want to loot some more with it. <laughs> like, my Tezzerets don't get the 7 loyalty. <laughs> Well, I lost that
0: game. I mean, I actually lost that game. I know.
2: So, <laughs> I think we had, a, we had a minus six maybe the turn before. <laughs> well, maybe if you were just down ticked.
0: Well, I had to uptick because I was sort on lands. Like, a 22 land deck with four trackers is kind of tough. Yeah. There were several turns where I kept on expecting, okay, I'll make my land drop, I'll, I'll draw two discard two, make my land drop, and then I'm off to the races, and just didn't find the lands, so... It's interesting, there's a lot of competing demands.
1: Well, I, it's an encouraging start, I think. I, I, the problems you're outlining can be solved, right? They're not, like, crazy, and you did beat, uh, for your complaints about how you don't interact well with Winota, you did beat Winota. Uh, you did beat Rakdos Midrange. You know, these are Tier 1 decks in the format. Um, so, yeah, I, I actually take this as a, as a pretty big positive, even though, uh, you know, I think you feel like maybe the results were middling.
0: It was a difficult league. I'll put it that way.
2: <laughs> it does seem like Pioneer is pretty hostile to kind of these fair-ish mid-range decks. You have Winota, which goes super big and wide really fast that you need to have answers on the spot to or outrace somehow. You have Blue-Eye Control playing a bunch of sweepers and counter spells and planeswalkers that can counter your key spells and then just you know run away with a Teferi. You have combo decks like Lotus, uh, Field, and Ascendancy where... I don't see how you're beating Lotus Healer reliably with this deck.
0: So this this deck, David, actually reminded me a lot of the Enchantress deck that I've been playing for the past couple weeks. And I'll just mention that deck as well, because I played it one updated version of that. After playing the Tezzeret build, I decided to go back to the Enchantress deck, this time trying a light red splash for Fable of the Mirror Breaker. Because what I had found was that when you have Eidolon of Blossoms and Satessan Champion up and running, you're just, you know, you're off to the races, it's the most beautiful feeling in the world. You get Hell Haunting down, you have Jukai Naturalist, so everything's cheap, and you're playing mana blooms every single turn. It's so good, it's so good. If you don't have those Enchantress Entrations down, you're you're not really doing anything. So I thought maybe Fable of the Mirror Breaker would give me like a slightly higher density of action, just like a little more opportunities to smooth things out, get past the clumps of non-Enchantress cards. So I did that, and it didn't really solve anything fundamentally. I still had that same issue where, like, I was counting on having an engine card in play, like Eidolon or Succession Champion, and these cards can be killed. Whereas other decks either are just trying to get me dead, or they're playing plenty of kill spells and then just you know resolve any Planeswalker. You know, even even a Chandra Torture Defiance is still two cards a turn. So structurally, it felt like very similar to. This uh, blue-green tesseret list where, you know, I'm trying to resolve a Tezzeret or a Titleist Tracker or a Reality Chip, but those can be disrupted. And if they are, then I'm paying the price for having put all these Synergy cards in the rest of the deck.
1: Yeah, I'm not surprised that Fable didn't work out. This does not look like a very natural add to what you are trying to do before. Um, you're describing it as a big card is the thing that I disagree with. I think it's it really helps decks try to go small. Um, but your deck needs to, you know, resolve, like, a zillion spells.
0: Well, I guess big in the sense that it, it contributes to the card draw engine, and it lets my commune with spirits find more more things that actually, say, draw a card on them. But yeah, no, this is... Fable is certainly not as good here as it is in, like, black decks.
2: The theory of Fable being good here makes sense, but I'm conv- I'm just not convinced, like, the core shell... Is particularly fixable at this point.
1: In general, I agree with Damon that basically they've hollowed out uh, Pioneer. I don't think mid-range is very good, which is unfortunate because those are the types of decks I love to play. I love to play Interactive Magic. Um, And so, yeah, uh, I guess we'll talk about it on Monday, but there basically are no (laughs) mid-range decks left. And uh, the the format has really bifurcated into different types of combo and uh, control. Um, you know, I considering Winota order to be a, a combo deck, which it is. So, yeah, it's 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 a, the formats in an interesting place. Um, you know, how many tickets will be burned as I uh, continue trying to build uh, interesting mid range decks in this in this place.
0: Well, let's talk about one more mid range deck just to close things out. So, Kato Shizuki is the other Planeswalker. best friends with the Wandering Emperor when they were young. And it seemed like a little bit of play in Modern. I occasionally run into it in Pioneer. I played against like a demure Rogue Ninjas deck once with Kato. But you've got an interesting sketch here, David, that uses Kato in a different way.
1: Yeah, so when I was playing my reanimator list, which seems like a long time ago, the formats changed so much uh, because of the bans and everything, the post-board games, I was winning them all just be by resolving Kaito-Shizuki in mid-range matchups and attacking with... Uh, graveyard Trespasser, and just outcarding my opponent. It was it was just a crazy card. It just came down for 3 mana and just drew a card for the rest of the game, and they had to spend a lot of resources to kill it. Um, the thing I realized is if you Gilded Goose on turn 1 and Kaito on turn 2 and then minus it against control, let's just say specifically blue-white control, they don't have a way of stopping both attacking creatures, and Goose is still a body that can basically attack freely for the rest of the game. So Kaito just turns into a one-sided Howling Mine for the rest of the game, basically. It's very difficult for blue-eye control to stop that. And I, Again, you're not always on the play, you don't always have goose, but when you do that, they basically cannot beat you. Um, obviously, that opening is also very good against combo because you're drawing two cards a turn and you're hopefully finding your spell pierces and your sensors and your whatever else. Um, so that was just intriguing to me. So I built a whole list with that sort of, you know, as, as my baseline, as a thing I wanted to be able to do reel is a card that i've been interested in before kaito always draws a card so it always triggers jewelry um but sometimes you have extra joel uh as damon and i found when we tried a bunch of reel lists we've got you know looting effects we have the um the stowaway and the uh, kaito that can just turn a reel into something else although in the maximal case right each of those can actually draw a card instead of looting um, spell Pierce, I think, is actually at its best right now in the format because, like I said, it's a it's a combo control format. And even Winota, they're playing eight cards that Spell Pierce is actually great against. Spell Pierce is awesome against Fable, and it's actually really good against Chariot. If you're trading one mana for three or four mana, uh, that's just an insane trade. Um, yeah, and then the deck is playing, you know, Push. It's the best uh, removal spell in the format. Sensor is a way to play cheap interaction with all of our Flash stuff. That also is a uncountable tr- uh, trigger for jewel reel
2: is there any room to lean in I, I mean you only have i guess like the three curious obsessions but there's the the new mana leak that costs two and a blue that's one cheaper if you have a flyer and one cheaper if you have an enchantment
1: yeah i thought about that damon and i am not going to play the moon circuit hackers i have two of them here I, I just don't think they're very good i so i was literally thinking i'd play one of those cards exactly as you say and then maybe a second of one mind or a fourth
2: curious obsession
0: doesn't that specifically require a spirit?
2: Oh, sorry.
0: Geist Light Snare?
2: Yeah. Y- you probably know You know the card better than I do, Dan. <laughs> At the point you know its name. It, it does require a spirit. You could also just
1: play the card that requires a flying creature. One in a blue. Uh, cause them to spend one more. But if you have a flying creature, it requires four more mana. Uh, we do have eight flying creatures.
0: Lofty Denial.
1: Yeah. But yeah, I'll play one more piece of counter magic. I don't know what it'll be. And then one more draw card. Probably another of one mind. Like another great opening against control is Gilded Goose on one turn, two Jolrill cast of one mind. Um, you have three power in play plus you've, you're up a card. You you just have a lot of like really nice opening hands against specifically blue eye control that does not have a lot of one mana plays against you.
0: Is Drown of the Lock a good card in Pioneer these days or not really?
1: It's I considered it. It's it's it'd be on my list of cards I consider as a one of
2: main deck card but i find it interesting you basically like have built a delver deck yeah there you go without having to play delver <laughs> yeah yeah without delver delver is terrible except in legacy <laughs> um and it, it makes sense how Kaido shizuki kind of powers up your delver strategy it kind of gives you an extra effect of this curious obsession which helps you kind of snowball a game into the victory and then it's a matter of like how do you protect your lead uh and, and get more ahead once you start off ahead
1: yeah, and basically this deck takes advantage of the fact that like goose taps for mana, and then normally it's kind of a dead card, right? You're not unless you are playing like the food engine and can't do anything, but it's a body for obsession, it's a flying creature if we decide to play this specific uh removal spell. Or it can just continue to attack with Kaito. That was kind of the big thing. There's very few actual flying blockers, it's just gonna attack freely for the rest of the game. And so Kaito is always gonna basically just be a three-mana planeswalker that comes down to plus and draw a card, uh, which is just Insanely powerful. There's, there's not even a four-minute planeswalker that does
2: that in the four minute. Dad, this deck had four wasteland and four will in four days. You could <laughs> tear it apart it's pioneer. A... <laughs> Don't even need brainstorm and ponder.
1: Uh, just wasteland, probably. <laughs> it's just a crazy, crazy card.
0: All right, that looks pretty sweet. Sultai draw two with Kaito Shizuki and Joel Ryle. A worthy deck. close out the season all right one last brew this one uses a card that (laughs) surprisingly enough has seen a little bit of modern play i'm talking about invoke despair target opponent sacrifices a creature if they can't they lose two life and you draw a card then repeat this process for an enchantment and a planeswalker so it's going to happen three times you're either going to Remove their resources or draw cards for yourself. So what do you do with this in Pioneer? In modern, we see it in kind of a silly Cabal Coffer's Urborg deck.
1: Yeah, so Pioneer, a this deck can cast it, right? Almost every land in the deck can make black. We have to make our mana a little bit worse. We don't get to play the four fable passages, so push isn't as good. The other way to make sure we can cast it is Fires of Invention, which allows us to play, uh, you know, we don't have to pay any mana. It doesn't matter how hard the spells to cast. Uh, so I built a Fires of Invention in Vote to list. I went 4 1, just missed out on a 5 uh, 0. I had some nice draws against me. I tweaked the list a little bit. I replaced Considers with Maze Mind Tome, and I added a 26 land, which was functionally a spell in uh, Otawara. The card's just absolutely insane with Fires in play. Uh, We even have Legends to make it cheaper sometime. But yeah, you're basically just a Grixis control list. You've got, you know, four push, four expressive iteration, uh, four fires, four invoke despair, two Leer, which is awesome with fires and despair. Although just a reminder to people, even with fires in play, you have to pay for the Leer flashback. Uh, Scare God, obviously a great card with fires. And then we just have all these value lands. We have uh, Tetsunuma. Uh, Otawara, Hive of the Eye Tyrant, and Castle Lockthoin. All these are just great cards with fires. And then, of course, for Graveyard Trespasser, the card is awesome against uh, a bunch of different shells. It keeps you alive. Um, And basically, all you need to do is not die because Invoke just turns into this 5 mana removal spell that basically just wins the game. It does four to your opponent. You draw two to find another Invoke. Uh, You just chain them all together. You don't really have to worry about killing them with creatures. Uh, You do a little bit of chip damage. The Invokes will just do the full 20.
2: Yeah, it's, it's kind of like a mini cruel ultimatum, and yes, exactly. It right. just comes online much faster. It makes a lot of sense with the fires list. Uh, it's cool to see a Grix's fires control shell compared. to All these, you know, like the Jeskai transmog lists are so so boring.
0: <laughs> this deck definitely takes it for style points. Two Lear main deck, Lear disciple of the drowned. One scare of God. Four graveyard trespassers, of course. A couple of maze mind tomes. The idea of like tap out control, you take that to its logical const- extreme, we don't need to play on their turn at all. <laughs> In fact, we can't play on their turn because Fire says we can't. And that's totally fine.
1: Yeah, so the main concern, right, is against Winota, you need to really be judicious with your decision to play Fires. Um, it does affect your ability to interact with Winota. Uh, basically, you just have Odawara at that point. Um, so you need to be way ahead. But, yeah, I mean, Leer, you're not playing any counter spells in your quote-unquote control deck, so there's no um, negative at all. And she's just an insane value engine. Uh, Scarab God getting back Leer, flashing back a spell. I mean, you just have some crazy lines in light game. I beat a Niv-Mizzet that literally cast every Niv-Mizzet in, the, in their list. Um, they, all their Niv-Mizzets were killed by me, um, and then I was Scarab God resurrecting them. And just Invoke just drew more cards than Niv-Mizzet did. It, just, it, it doesn't even get close.
2: Would you ever play a card like Malevolent Hermit in this list? Uh, that card sees legacy play, like a fair amount of legacy play. As a quick reminder, this is the one and a blue for a 2-1 wizard with blue sac, counter-target, non-creature spell, unless his controller plays three, and then disturbs for two and a blue into a 2-2 two, two flyer with non-creature spells you control can't be countered. And so I wonder, against like, like, the blue-white decks, the combo decks, uh, it kind of has game against both of them. I think especially blue-white.
1: Yeah, that is an awesome card, and I was thinking about it. At the time, there was just a ton of exile effects in white. Um, So I was thinking maybe it wouldn't actually die, but yeah. that that,
2: You don't cast it on turn two. If you keep a blue up, it doesn't get exiled.
1: Yeah, that's a a great point. Um, Yeah, I I definitely think there's room for that in the sideboard. I definitely don't want this uh, second Culligan's Command doesn't do anything. So I think that at least a one-for-one swap there and... Maybe find a second uh, home for it, maybe
2: over duress. That that sounds awesome, Damon. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see if that card, like, why is, this, is he playing Legacy, not other formats? Uh, it's always impressed me um, on the other side of the battlefield more than uh, I've been casting it. But you know, you can't really Swords it or Prismatic Ending it; they just sack it. Love it.
1: I'm in. All right, it's been a wonderful uh, reunion with the three amigos here. Uh, so with that, we are going to bid you everybody adieu. We will be back on Monday. Like I said, we will have a little introduction to Pioneer. So if anyone is excited to get their hands dirty in the format, roll up your sleeves, start maybe brewing some decks. The format's still a little bit of, little stale. Everyone's just playing 5 0 Um Join us then, and we will, uh, you know, follow the Elbrick Road.
2: Yeah. Thanks for taking us through your uh, pretty cool looking pioneer list. I mean, especially with new triomes and new charms, some of these lists may really have a chance to pop.
0: All right. That sounds great. Have a good weekend, y'all. See you next time. Take care. All right. See ya. Deck lists for this episode can be found at our homepage, faithlessbrewing.com. And tune in on Monday for everything you need to know to get back into Pioneer. Support for this podcast is provided by brewers like you. If you like what we do, you can join our community at patreon.com slash faithlessbrewing for Discord access, bonus content, and more. That's all for today. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time.